There's one phrase that is common in every child's and adult's vocabulary. It goes like this. It's just not fair. That's not fair. It seems like we all have this longing for life to be fair. I remember when my my brother Stephen and I were younger, we loved and love ice cream. And we wanted to make sure that he didn't get more than me. And so I remember my, my mom getting frustrated with us one day. She's like, okay, Michael and Stephen, stop it. So she got the kitchen scale off the top of the refrigerator, put it on the kitchen table and said, there, weigh your bowls of ice cream so they're just the right amount, or same amount. So you're not getting more. And as a last resort, so we'd stop bickering about who got the fair share of ice cream. And, uh, you know, the thing is, in our walk with Christ or in life, it seems like we're all wanting life to be fair. We want to, to live in this way that says, if I do this, then I'll get this. Or if I do X, then I'll get Y or Z. We want to live in a, in a fair world with rules and rubrics guiding our lives to guide us to, to what we think is satisfaction. Maybe we get perturbed when, when the other guy who's not working as hard as we do gets the promotion and we don't. Or get frustrated when, when somebody else gets success and, and we're busy working hard and trying to do what we think is, you know, I should get my fair share. This is not fair for him to succeed or her to succeed and me not. We think that success or fairness looks like what America has just received. You know, we think it looks like a certain house and looks like a certain car, looks like a certain vacation. And that's the blessing of God, we think, somehow, in Christianity. But we forget about what blessing and fairness looks like for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria or India, Kenya or China. We want life to be fair. We say it's just not fair. I think that way. And I think probably most of you sometimes think it's, it's the way we run. We've developed this sort of Christianized karma where what goes around always comes around. So if I do this and this and I do this good thing, then God will love me more and bless me more. We know that that vicious cycle is wrong. We know that there's nothing, there's no such thing as Christianized karma, but we seem to live this way, in this cycle of like cause and effect. I do this, then I get this. Because, and if I don't get that, I get mad. I think it's, it's not fair. I should get this. We know that this is a vicious cycle that's not really what God intends, but we are caught up in it regardless. And so my question for you this morning, and for me, is how are we to respond to this Christianized karma thinking, this, this idea that what goes around always comes around, and if I do X, I'll get Y or Z, or I'll get my fair share on the balance of the scales of life. How are we to respond to that? Or what does God offer to us? What do we see in Him that gets us off this vicious cycle? that we constantly run into all the time. I want you to look with me to the lives of three different men in the Bible. Their stories 
unveil for us and open our eyes, open my eyes to something that overturns every single thought of this, this Christianized karma, this idea that we got to get our fair share. They didn't get what they deserved. They didn't get what they earned. And it's a good thing they didn't. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Starting with the prophet Nathan. Now get this. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, that is speaking of King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But verse 4, Notice the contrast. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant, thus says the Lord, Who would build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. Now, Nathan the prophet goes on to describe to David the covenant that God is making with him. But the big point I want you to see in this is that Nathan claimed to be speaking for the Lord when the Lord had not yet spoken earlier that day. He said, the Lord is with you. Do whatever you want. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. The Lord, he spoke, he claimed to be speaking for God when God had not yet spoken. And what Nathan had said previously was wrong. He presumed upon God. Look with me in verse, in verse um, 11. It says, when your days are fulfilled, verse 12, excuse me, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know that to be Solomon. But we know when this, when this narrative is described in the other passages in Chronicles and so forth, that Nathan has to go before King David and say, um, what I said earlier wasn't actually the truth. That's not a good thing. For those reading this text a few thousand years ago, they would have jumped to Deuteronomy chapter 18. The legalist would jump to chapter 18 and they'd say, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. If you turn to uh, to Deuteronomy 18.20, here are the rules, here are the rubrics for what prophets are supposed to abide by. Verse 20 says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Nathan, the prophet, deserved to die. He claimed to be speaking for the Lord when the Lord had not yet spoken. But David shows Nathan grace. Nathan doesn't get, deserve, doesn't get what he deserved. He deserved to die. He deserved 
to face punishment because he presumed to speak for the Lord when the Lord had not spoken. So if you look back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read again, When your days are fulfilled, this is verse 12, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David's not going to build the temple because he's a violent and bloody man. We know that from other passages that relate this story, as I said. But this is serious. Everyone reading this text would have seen that. I did not see that until a couple weeks ago when a professor pointed it out to me and he said, you know, Nathan deserved to die here. But we don't hear anything about Nathan getting punished. David knew what was said. Yet King David showed grace, favor and kindness to the undeserving, one who deserves something else, Nathan. And so what principle can we get out of this? I think, first of all, I think about... In my life, Stephanie doesn't always get what, gets what she deserves. I don't treat her with the love and the respect and the patience that she deserves often. I, I, I love her greatly, but I'm a frail, faulty person. I try to do my best to love her. I try to do what's right. But she doesn't love me because of what I do, but because of who I am. She loves me because she loves me. She shows grace because she loves me. And that's the way it works with God. And I think David understands that, that there's something here deeper that's not based just on the law. Grace overturns the law. As is revealed in Jesus Christ later on. And so, in my life, when, when, when Stephanie shows me love, when I know I don't deserve it. How many husbands here know that uh, they don't deserve all the love they get from their wives? <laughs> it's unearned, it's unmerited, but it's, it's favor and kindness. I'm, I receive patience from her when I'm impatient. Love from her when I'm unloving. Kindness from her when I'm unkind. Nathan the prophet deserved to die. But David showed him grace. So first, believe in the grace of God. And as this looks in your life, give grace instead of legalism. Give grace instead of legalism. It overturns the rule of fair. This just happened to me this morning. To, uh, yesterday morning, I finished my assignments for my last seminary class at 3.03 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. All my assignments were supposed to be due. Yeah, I'm kind of tired still. <laughs> Most of my assignments were due. All my assignments were due by 11.59 p.m. Central Standard Time. That means my last assignment, when I submitted it online in this Dallas Seminary portal for online submissions, it was two hours late. And I emailed the professor and I said, you know... If uh, I get marked down for this, I know that I deserve it. This is the rule. You said you don't, you know, you're going to mark down late assignments. Um, but I just wanted to let you know that 
My wife is pregnant. She's been sick. She's had a really bad cold lately, and so on and so forth. And I said, if there's any chance for grace. (laughs) This morning, he emailed me and he said, thank you, grace. I said, praise God. (laughs) Two hours. The rule said in the syllabus, you're going to be marked out for this assignment if it's submitted late. Grace says, I'm going to overturn the rule. And show you favor that you don't deserve, that you didn't earn, that you didn't merit because you submitted it late, but that's grace. So give, give grace instead of legalism. Give grace instead of the law. Don't be like the guy who said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nathan deserved to die. Deuteronomy 18.20 says, live in grace. Give grace. But it gets more interesting Turn with me a couple pages over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is where the story between Nathan the prophet, who has just been given grace by King David, who had every right to say, look it, you just made a big mistake yesterday when you gave me this whole spiel and said, yeah, go do whatever you want. David has gone on to wage war, to build his kingdom up, But he gets complacent in his walk with the Lord. And we all know the story between him and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And he does a grievous sin. He does a grievous thing. He not only takes another man's wife and commits sexual immorality, he also has her her husband killed. He has Uriah placed out in front of the battle where he will be deliberately taken down in the heat of the war. David deserved to die. And so, what does the law say? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 22, just a couple pages over from our previous reference. Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22 says, verse 22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. David deserves to die. Bathsheba deserves to die. David deserves to die in two counts. He had another man killed and he slept with his wife. And so Nathan, the prophet, who has previously been shown grace by King David when he deserved to die, Goes before, goes before King David. God has shown him what the king has done. He shares a little story. He says, There were two men in a certain field, a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat it of eat of uh, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then 
David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he had done this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan, with tears in his eyes, think about this. Nathan deserved to die. King David showed grace. But Nathan goes before King David and says, you're the man. You're the man who deserves to die. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, get this, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. Don't miss that. He deserves to die. The law says King David is supposed to die. But Nathan has experienced grace. And our God is a gracious God. And he punishes King David, yes. But he doesn't die. He doesn't die. Nevertheless, he says in verse 14, Because by this deed you have uttered scorn, utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. You see, it's, it's the legalist who jumps up and says, the law is it, the rule, the rubric. He says, you die. That's your fair share. That's what you deserve. That's what you've earned. And that's your punishment. But somehow, God can do whatever he wants. Amen. And he overturns by grace. What is grace? Sometimes I've heard people say that grace is the divine enablement to, to do the will of God. That's more the result of grace. That's not a definition of grace itself. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God towards mankind. And he has shown that through his son Jesus Christ. We can't earn it. That's what's so amazing about grace if it was earned, it wouldn't be blessing. It would be a wage. Grace is grace because we cannot obtain it. We can only receive it. That's the kind of God we serve. So give grace instead of legalism. 
But there's another story. So we've seen in Nathan and in King David, they both were recipients of God's grace. But the Apostle Paul, turn with me to Acts chapter, chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We revere the Apostle Paul. He wrote more than two-thirds of the New Testament. He went into the far, farthest reaches of the known world in his time and proclaimed the gospel. But before he was Paul, he was called Saul. And this is the picture we get. And the witnesses, the stoning of Stephen, came around and they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is in verse 59 now of Acts chapter 7. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Well, that's grace. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul was standing there with the cloaks, with the, with the coats of the men who were throwing rocks the size of my hand or bigger at Stephen. He was standing there with a smirk on his face as the stones ran into the temple of Stephen's head, broke his arms, broke his legs, and killed him on the site. And so I was sitting there. Good work, guys. Good work. That's what we're about. Saul is a wicked, wicked guy. And then it goes on. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul made it his business to go around taking people like you and I, people who believed in Jesus Christ, committing them to prison, approving of their stoning, wishing for their death. That was what he made his business to be. But I believe that God put that story in the book of Acts to show the amazing overturn of how God's grace can transform a person's life. That not only could Paul have his name changed to Paul from Saul, but that it could transform him entirely from a man who had his entire person directed towards hating God's people and seeing them dead to a man who really understood grace. So turn with me to Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he was angry, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues. This is verse 1 of chapter 9. And so he went to... uh, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, those believing in Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But then Jesus Christ steps in. Saul is on this rampage to make a mess of the church, to imprison, perhaps even slaughter anyone who's belonging to this way of Jesus Christ. And Christ steps in. He's on the road to Damascus. And he meets the risen Lord on the street. 
And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul becomes Paul, who becomes the apostle, who becomes the proclaimer of Jesus Christ to the nations. But there's people like you and me who are in this situation, and they knew about Saul, the persecutor, and they didn't want to accept him really in. They were really leery. And so if you look in verse 26 of chapter 9, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They couldn't necessarily believe that God could change that kind of man? The grace of God could change that kind of man? How could God's grace extend to him? Oh, my word. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. When the gospel of grace comes into a person's life, it transforms their lives. And this is why probably the Apostle Paul mentioned the grace of God more than 150 times in the New Testament. Because he called himself even the chief of sinners. He recognized that he did not deserve favor from God. He did not deserve kindness from God. He did not deserve forgiveness from God. But when God stepped in and showed forgiveness and grace... All Paul could do was talk about Jesus Christ. All Paul could do was proclaim about this amazing, amazing grace because he didn't deserve it. All he could do was receive it. I remember when I I went to India and a friend of mine, Pastor Mekala, told me his story. And he was uh, 30... I think 30 years old, 32 years old, when he came to Christ. But he grew up as an orphan, a Dalit, untouchable caste in India. And as he grew up, he became angry, angry at people, angry at this idea of God that he didn't really even have figured out the time because he had this influx of Hindu teaching, even though his mother was a Christian. And he became an alcoholic, abused his wife, Almost starved his three sons. Made fun of Christians. And then in one evening, when a friend came over, or a man trying to be his friend, shared the gospel, God opened up his heart, and he said, I can be forgiven from what I've done. He knew he was a wicked sinner. He knew he deserved punishment. He knew he deserved death. But God showed him forgiveness. God showed him redemption. God showed him grace. And from that moment on, his entire life has been consumed with proclaiming the amazing grace of God. He lives in the grace of God instead of duty. I remember when I was with him, we were putting gas in his little two-bit car outside this little village. And he was praising the Lord. Thank you, God, for gas in the car. Praise God. Everything about his life It's grace. If I have food to eat, 
If I can take in more orphans at my, at my orphanage, if I can train more pastors, if I can preach to the lost, praise the Lord, because my life deserved death. See, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. That's what my professor said. And at first I resisted that. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. And I realized if life was really fair, we'd all be facing eternal condemnation and punishment. But grace, it's not what we deserve. It's not what we earn. It's kindness through Jesus Christ. So live in the grace of God. Finally, I want you to believe in the grace of God instead of karma. On my way back from Dallas to Detroit, I uh, was praying that the Lord would bring a person along that I could talk to about the gospel. And uh, prayed that before I got on the plane. And my first flight, I had three stopovers. My first flight from Dallas to St. Louis, I just slept because my flight left at 6.15 in the morning. And then from St. Louis to Chicago, I uh, had the opportunity to share with uh, uh, an elderly woman who happened to be a professor at a liberal, very liberal theological seminary. It was interesting. We talked about the gospel. We talked about uh, how I view the Bible, how she views the Bible, Bible and so forth. But on the next stopover from, from Chicago to Detroit, it's just a short flight, most of the people cleared off and then New passengers came back on. I remained in my seat. And I was just kind of mind my own business. I thought, well, maybe I'll pick up this book again. I'm trying to get through on, it was uh, on interpreting the book of Revelation. And uh, I looked up, and a young girl about my age smiled, sat down next to me. And she just immediately started talking. She's like, so where are you from? Why are you going to Detroit? You from Michigan? You from, well, you know, she just started asking me all these questions. And she saw the, the Bible that I had on top of my laptop case, and I noticed she, she kept looking at it. She said, so why were you in Dallas? I said, well, I was going to a seminary class. Oh, really? Well, what do you think about like, God and stuff in the seminary thingy? And I'm like, well, so I shared a brief kind of summary of the gospel to her. And I said, well, what do you think about God and seminary stuff? And she said, well, I think life is like karma. You know, it, basically, like, what goes around comes around. If I do a nice thing for somebody, then I'll eventually kind of get another nice thing from somebody else. It'll kind of come back around. And if, and if I do something kind of rotten, if I don't give somebody the patience that they deserve, if I don't show somebody kindness, then, then, then that'll kind of come back around, too. And so she shared with me this story about how she had... Uh, not given kindness or patience with a, a friend of hers who had kind of gone through a breakup experience. And, and then when she was in a similar experience, the friend didn't show her the kindness that she wanted. I'm like, oh, okay. So I said, well, what about the guy I met when I was doing prison ministry in Huntsville, Texas, who was only a few years older than me, but had received a 325-year sentence for murdering two people and for being a drug dealer in L.A.? Does he have any hope, or is his life just one big bad karma? And she said, I I don't know. And then it hit me. My professor's statement, the the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair, is because it offers hope. 
to even the young guy who has a 325-year prison sentence for murdering two people and for dealing drugs on the streets of L.A. And for a young girl who, as this girl shared with me, had made a mess of her life for the last six years. It offers her and him hope. Anyone, even Saul, the persecutor of the church, murderer of Christians, even Nathan, the prophet who deserved to die, even King David, who had killed a man and slept with his wife, who deserved to die. That is the big difference between any other religion and our gospel of grace, is that it offers hope to those who don't deserve it, to anyone To anyone. That's what's so amazing about grace. I pray that uh, my short conversation with with this young girl might stick in her mind. It also just so happened. God answers prayer. She grew up in the same town, St. Clair, Michigan, that I was raised in for a short period of time. She happened to know some of my best friends from when I was a 10 or 12-year-old kid there. I had played football in the backyard of my friend's house with her brother when I was a kid. That is crazy. God brought her along so that maybe she could understand the difference between the gospel and karma. I fall into this temptation, though, and I think you and I do too, is that sometimes... We want to get what we deserve, not realizing that what we deserve is death. We deserve punishment, but God loves us because he loves us. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his son Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary to be the substitute, to to bear our place on the cross. We deserve death, we deserve punishment, but Jesus Christ, through his blood on the cross, said, No! For all who believe. And when the Father looks down at you and at me, He says, what sin? It is as far away as the east is from the west. He has removed our trespasses, our transgressions, the punishment, the guilt, the shame, and said, grace. That is the amazing thing that transforms our lives. There's a big difference between being motivated by fear and being motivated by grace. And I want you to purpose with me to think about, to believe in, to live in, to give this grace that will change our lives and make us not a people of fear or people of somehow, some kind of Christianized karma that's just waiting for a cause and effect relationship and a blessing that doesn't really satisfy, but a people of grace who give it to others and who share out of love because they've been loved. We're going to close with a song that everyone knows, but it was written by a man you may not have heard of. A man named Isaac grew up with a Christian influence but became a slave trader A wicked, rotten, perverse, vile, profane slave trader. But God opened his eyes to the grace of Jesus Christ. 
I messed up. His name is John Newton, not Isaac Newton. John realized the grace of God, and it changed his life. And he wrote this song, Amazing Grace, that you all know. But maybe it'll mean something more to you now that you've seen that not only in the prophet Nathan, but in King David and in Saul to Paul to your life. I could go on in a whole list of people who received grace that didn't deserve it. Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabitess, Abraham the liar, Noah, kind of a interesting character. They all made mistakes, but God showed them grace. 